Well, change was coming to the hot, dry desert of southern Nevada. After much consideration, it was determined that flood control and hydroelectric power and irrigation water would all be sourced right there in the middle of the desert. This would in turn produce an incredible capacity for all kinds of things. So they set out building a town because workers, thousands of them, need a place to live in the middle of the desert. They set out pouring 4.5 million cubic yards of concrete because the lake that could hold water the size of Connecticut 10 feet deep needs a place to go. They set out completing this colossal dam two years ahead of schedule but delaying and naming the dam because that's what politics do. Well, firmly fixed in place, Hoover Dam then formed Lake Mead with a capacity to hold 7,733 cubic miles of water. That one dam, that immense capacity to form a lake to give power to protect entire states, this is almost hard to conceive. And this morning, you and I are going to address a text of Scripture that speaks to our capacity. It speaks to our capacity to love, and I believe in similar ways it speaks to a capacity we might have a hard time conceiving. See, I'm not sure that we have understood all that God has done in us when we were redeemed. How radically the gospel changes our capacity, our ability to love others and to love one another, how it's altered our hearts to be able to love in newly refreshing and deeply compelling ways. There is an overflow within us, a volume stored up, through faith in Christ by God. And perhaps this morning we come in unaware of this capacity. We may not realize the change that took place. We may not realize the command of the scripture or even the biblical understanding of the term love. Well, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 through 25, they inform that today. Really, it's one command. It's the command to love fervently. It's going to be our driving force this morning, our main idea, love fervently. Now, Peter began his letter, First Peter, by rehearsing the facts of our general salvation. Now, we've worked through the first 21 verses of First Peter chapter 1. We like to go pretty much verse by verse here at Emmanuel. And based on what we learn there of our salvation, we're called to respond. Here's what God has done. Here's what we should do. We learn in verse 15 that we are to be holy. In verse 17, fear God. And this morning, earnestly love. Picking up where we left off, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22 Peter writes, since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, 
fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Now, I mentioned that this command to love one another is the main idea, the essence of this passage. But it's good to note that this main idea stands on two legs. It's supported by what we would say are two causes or two reasons we are able to love. And these causes, they stand on each side of the command. There's one at the beginning of verse 22, the first half. And then really verses 23 through 25 are a second leg or second cause. We could go up to Peter and say, well, Peter, how am I to love fervently? How am I to do this? And Peter would say, well, it's because you've been purified for that very thing. That's verse 22. And because God has given you new birth, that, those last few verses. And these two reasons or two causes work together. Your new birth by the power of God grants you uh, an ability to purify your soul. And as I mentioned, we're going to focus really on this command to love one another, but we want to see the causes for it as well. So we'll begin, firstly, with biblical love. Biblical love is a fervent love from your heart. Biblical love is a fervent love from your heart. If you look at verse 22, you're going to see the word love appear two times in that verse. It appears the same way in English, but there are actually two different Greek words in the original text. And taken together, they help us form a biblical definition of love. Now, one word for love is pronounced agape. If you've been invested in some form of Bible study over the years, this word may sound familiar. It's called agape love. It's a Greek word for love. This is the love of fervently love one another, fervently agape one another. It's an appreciation or a, a warm regard for someone. It's even an affection. It might be helpful to to give you a a contrast as a way to better understand this. There are three other Greek words for love. One of them we're going to see in a moment. That means that agape love is not these other three. For example, there is not a romantic love bound up in agape. There's a different word for that. This word is not a family love. There's another word for that. This love is not a brotherly love. There is another word for that. This word, this love, it involves elements of a self-sacrificial service. Individuals who love others are sacrificing for them. They're serving them in, in real and tangible ways. In fact, this word is the most popular word for love throughout our New Testaments. In fact, some of our favorite verses include this word. God is love. For God so loved the world... Love is patient. Love is kind. Love never fails. It's that type of word appearing in those verses. So this thing gives us a great starting place in in understanding a biblical concept of love and 
in turn, what we are to do. But look again at verse 22. Peter speaks of a sincere love of the brethren. That's a different word for love. That's pronounced Philadelphia. It means brotherly love, phileo love. What do you think about when you hear the word Philadelphia? Right, the best sports franchises in the nation. Yeah, Eagles and 76ers, Phillies. It's a building year for the Flyers, but they're coming back. Actually, don't look to Philadelphia for this definition of love. Their fans are among the worst in the sports world. they, They installed a jail in the old Eagle Stadium. And they consistently make the top rudest cities in America. So don't look to Philadelphia for this definition. Appreciate their sports franchises, but not their love. Philadelphia means brotherly love, and you get it. It's a love specifically directed towards brothers or towards sisters. When God adopted you, when you became a Christian, you became a brother or sister to other Christians. God puts you in the family of God with God as your father. So this then is a love that's very specific to Christians. If we put this together, we're to have a love that is self-sacrificial. It's an affection toward fellow believers. You see that Paul or Peter writes of a fervent love. And he could have said quite simply, love one another, but he said more than that. He said, fervently love one another. Some of your Bible versions read, deeply love or earnestly love. If you look at other writings of the time, the same era when Peter wrote, the word describes a stretching out or an intense strain. There's this unceasing activity that requires an intensity for it. This is the same word that's used of Jesus praying in the garden. He was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood. We have that image of our Lord praying on the eve of his arrest. It's that type of fervency behind the love Peter calls us to. So I want to ask you right here, do you love fervently? I think it's quite common for you and I as believers to love one another, but do we love one another fervently? I mean, I'm sure that Christians love all the time. I mean, there is loving one another and there is fervently loving one another. It almost brings about a whole new level of love that we ought to be displaying toward each other. And there might be some ways that we can test ourselves in this. I think a fervent love is going to cost us something. That idea of, of straining or stretching could cost us something financially. It might mess with our schedule a bit through the week. Maybe sometimes it hurts. There's an emotional toll involved in this idea of sacrificing for a Christian. But I'd say a fervent love is also very rewarding. I don't want to paint it simply in stark terms because a fervent love can very well love you back as the believer responds to your love. Someone will appreciate your love. I find that the Lord shows up in unique ways when we're stretching and straining on the behalf of others. 
I think also you may have experienced a particular joy and fulfillment as you've strained to love one another and you've sacrificed for others. So love others, and according to Peter, love others fervently. I want you to note in this passage as well that biblical love is a one another love. And this really flows right out of this meaning of phileo or brotherly love. We, we, we hear that. There are 59 one another commands in the New Testament. And what they do is they function to teach us how we ought to interact in Christian community. It's why you and I must gather in a local church to be a Christian. We need one another to fulfill the one another commands. There's something almost logical about that. We cannot, by definition, fulfill the one another's by ourselves. We're apart from God's body. Now, some of these one another's in the New Testament are going to sound very familiar to you. Pray for one another. Serve one another. Honor one another. Accept one another. Admonish one another. Four times you're commanded to greet one another with a holy kiss. Someone said amen. I would just wade into that one very judiciously. But most common are the commands for unity, interestingly, and the commands for love. Those, if we were to put them into categories, would be the leading commands, the leading one another's of the New Testament. Love for Christians is a test of our salvation. 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death, writes John. Love serves fellow Christians. Paul writes in Galatians 5, verse 13, that you were called to freedom, brethren. Do not allow your freedom to be an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. Love kills sin. It's a great defense against sin. Peter's going to write later in chapter 4, verse 8, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Because love covers a multitude of sins. And love is really, really important to Jesus. In John chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Later in chapter 15, verse 12, this is John's gospel. Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another. A few verses later, this I command, that you love one another. Do you love your fellow Christians? That's the emphasis or the the, the focus of Peter's command. It's not to say that we're not to love unbelievers or non-Christians. We certainly must. It was the same Jesus who told us to love our enemies. But the New Testament, again, it places a particular focused emphasis on love 
for one another, love for the community of faith. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. God makes no mistakes when he plants his people. He's going to take each child of his as they become adopted children and place them in local families called churches. And every, every church family, you may recognize this, has many different personalities and many different preferences and people with all kinds of different problems. But God has given you one another. It is a gift. I said that on purpose. Gift. Because some of you are looking around at the people in your church and wondering how they are possibly a gift. It's like getting socks on Christmas. But I can assure you that God specifically planted you where you are. And he did that so you could love those around you in your family and be loved by them. And God planted you where you are so you could grow and you grow by loving one another. One more note to strike here on this passage before we move along. Peter writes of a biblical love being a heart-based love. And here he's speaking to the source. Way back when, in Ezekiel chapter 36 of the Old Testament, God predicted a time where his salvation in Christ is going to come and it's going to, to bring a change to the very core of his people. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. In other words, this love that we are to have, it's driven by God. It's driven by his Holy Spirit. And that means that there's a particular depth to this. And here we should note that it should be an authentic or a genuine type of love. That's what Peter has in mind. So in summary, biblical love is a fervent love. It, it, it's flowing from our hearts. And I'd say that in, in many ways, this love is, is contrary to the world's view of love. And even in some ways, contrary to how churches might love. But I believe then, too, it may raise a couple of questions. So what I want to do is walk through what I perceive are some common questions pertaining to this type of love. Someone may well ask, well, what if I don't have it in me to love others like this? I mean, this sounds pretty intense, doesn't it? Fervently love? Whoa. That sounds a little uncomfortable. I mean, I feel like I'm being pulled, or I need to pull from a well that doesn't go as deep as it needs to go to love in that way. Well, again, I'm going to go back to our introduction, and I'm going to prove it in a moment, that you have the capacity to love this way. You have it within you since you're born again. And I think, in fact, we're already kind of good at this. Because Jesus has said it this way. He says, love others as you love yourself. In other words, he wants us to tap into the love that we already have for ourselves and shift that and use it, direct it toward others. It's almost assumed that we have that capacity within us. It's not a question then of whether or not we have it in us, it's whether or not we understand what God has done in us. That may be the better question. 
Well, secondly, what if I'm not a people person? Fervent love for Christians, you need to know, is for all personality types. The command is for all of us, maybe not simply the extrovert or the hugger. This is for everybody. And I might even go so far as to say that you can show a fervent love in very soft and quiet and modest ways. And I contend that there are times when people need to be loved that way. A loud and and boisterous love, we may think of that when we think about a fervent love. Not every occasion calls for that. So there's a way to love fervently, no matter your personality type. And I would also add to this that experiences can change us. Maybe we're wired a certain way or perceive our personality in a certain way. We know when life experiences change us, how much more a salvation experience where God regenerates us and sanctifies us and makes us more like Christ. And we are changing and have this capacity and Lord willing desire to love others. How about this one from the guys? What if I'm a male? What if I'm a man? Isn't this love more for women? That question really gets to the core of what it means to be a man. Is there something emasculating about loving others? Well, men, you need to know that fervently love, as this command is stated, is always going to apply to us just as it would women. In fact, I could go so far as to say, men, that you and I need to be taking leadership roles in our church and humbly serving others in our church, women and widows and children and families. You see, the text calls you and I not to simply love others, but to fervently love others. That's a call to men just as much as it is women. I believe it's a widely held doctrine that men go to work and earn a paycheck and they come home and maybe they go on vacation or do projects on the house. But men, when God saved you, he saved you to bless his church. He saved you to serve his church. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13, be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Paul, what does it mean to act like men? It's the next verse. Let all that you do be done in love. You see, men, fervent love is not for women only. You and I should be leading the charge on this. We should be out in the lead when it comes to fervently loving. You see, it would be masculine for a man to have a friendship so close that he could be praying for his brother's pornography problem as he lives out his day. It would be masculine for a man to be so burdened by the sin of a sister that he's weeping over it. It would be masculine for a man to be so zealous for what God might do that he's sweating, working on the red house. It would be masculine for a man to serve his wife by cleaning the house as you open up your home for another family. All of these are displays of masculinity, contrary, perhaps, to the traditional view, but always in line with the biblical view of fervent love. How about this question? Do I need to be tolerant to be loving? In our present culture, tolerance is love. Tolerance equals sign love. Love, in that definition, is accepting. Love is affirming. 
To be intolerant is to be unloving. But I think at the core, we sense that there's something wrong there, that this doesn't quite work, that tolerance and love are really not the same thing. I read an opinion piece in a column last week. The author wrote, we don't send I tolerate you cards. To love is to care about someone enough to tell them the truth. To love someone is to warn them or to say hard things to them. You and I should not be tolerant of sin that's corroding the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't need to be mean about it, but we don't want to tolerate it and sit idly by. And we know, too, that we're never going to win the loss to Jesus Christ by affirming them in the sin that Jesus came to cleanse. So you don't need to be tolerant of sin to be loving. In fact, it may be biblically unloving to tolerate sin. Well, just one more question, and I think we've answered it in part already. Do, do I love non-Christians, or should I love non-Christians? And I ask that here because the emphasis or the focus of the passage is on loving fellow believers. And it's true. That's what Peter writes in verse 22. But this should not diminish a love that we ought to have for the lost as well. If anything, it elevates the love that we should have for one another or for God's people. So I want to ask you, how are you treating God's people this morning? Outwardly, even inwardly from your heart, are are you loving them? I mean, just compare it for a moment to those who don't know Christ. What does it look like when you set the two side by side? I think that we often love the lost or love the unsaved, or or have good friends who don't know Christ, because we want them to come to faith. And that's good, that's right. But I gotta ask, are are, are we getting to the gospel? Are we moving, do we have a plan to share Jesus Christ with them? And let me give you just one other strategy for evangelism. Jesus said, we read this, John 13, verse 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And that means that when the lost look to the people of God and they see each of you loving one another, fervently loving one another, sacrificially loving one another from your heart, when you adopt this, you're putting, you're imitating the love of God that he has for his people. That's an evangelism strategy. You see, because people are looking for love. And the best that the world has to offer them is tolerance and some cheap slogan like, be your own truth. But God, who is the source of truth, who is the fulfillment of love, he calls us to love one another and to put out some form of a light that shows that this is satisfying and this is good and and you can have this. It's a fervent love for one another from the heart. Well, I want to look then at our two causes. They answer the question, how is this fervent love possible? In the the first part of verse 22, Peter writes, Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Fervently love one another from the heart. The command is what we just addressed in the last half of that verse, but it's based on your faith and the purity that followed your faith. Obedience to truth makes 
fervent love possible. This is another way of speaking, I believe, about saving faith. Just to give you an example, in Romans chapter 16, Paul writes, the commandment of the eternal God has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith. Perhaps you might expect him there to say something like leading to the gospel, but he says obedience of faith. And what I think is going on here is that any time a person, a human being, is to take a first step of obedience to following God or obeying Jesus, it is to believe in the gospel. It is to come to faith. And from that moment, a purification begins to take place. From the moment that someone believes upon Jesus. Now remember, this is preparing our hearts to love other Christians. That's the focus of our passage, this Philadelphia type of love. And what Peter's saying here is that when you believe the gospel, the purification begins to take place that grants you a grace to fervently love believers. Now, the Bible, and the Old Testament in particular, there's, it's filled with all kinds of things that need purified. In fact, if you look back at verses 15 and 16, we've seen this word a few weeks ago. It's the same word used in verse 22 purification or, or be holy or be purified. And back there, we, we listed many examples from Leviticus, all kinds of things that needed to be purified to be the people of God. Well, they needed to do this because impurity could happen in all kinds of ways. In the Old Testament, if you came in contact with a corpse, perhaps it'd be some kind of a dead animal, you'd be impure. Maybe you ate a certain kind of food or suffered a particular disease. You become impure. One who is impure needs to be cleansed or washed to be purified. And I want to look at just one example with you this morning because I think this particular one helps us to understand what Peter's saying. It helps to provide some background on this idea of purification. In Leviticus 14... Moses writes about purification from the skin disease, leprosy. Leprosy was a nasty disease. It's a skin disease. In the Bible, it serves as an illustration of sin. It affects the person physically and spiritually. If a priest diagnosed someone as leprous, that person would be moved outside the camp of Israel. He would have to live alone. If he sees someone else coming, he needs to yell out, unclean, unclean, so they didn't get too close. If he recovers from his leprosy, he must then be purified. He brings two live, clean birds to the priest, cedar wood, scarlet yarn, and hyssop. These would be used in the cleansing ritual. The priest would take one of the birds and kill the bird over a pot of water. The live bird was then dipped into that water. The unclean man was sprinkled with that water seven times, and the live bird released. The man may now enter the camp because he's been declared pure, yet for seven days he must sleep outside of his tent. On day seven, he shaves his head, his beard, and his eyebrows, he bathes in water, washes his clothes, he's purified. Friends, purification is no easy task. 
And if you've been in the trenches for any amount of time on this, as you've met other believers and you've struggled to love them, you understand there's something going on in your heart. There's a purification taking place, a a pushing and a pulling happening. With that background in mind, Peter's writing this notion of fervent love. Just as leprosy has, has corrupted the body, God is working in you to remove this sinful tendency. Look down at chapter 2, verses 1 for a moment. There's a purification happening in our relationships. Peter writes, putting aside all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. What's interesting here is how closely these sins are connected to our passage and how each one of them really tends to rot unity or love among the brethren. From the moment that God gave you new birth, you've had a new nature, and there's a purification taking place in you to love others who also have a new birth. And it's important for you and I, I would just add this, to to, to lean into this if I could say it that way. Because I think the tendency is when we hit a wall or we meet that person is to flee and to run away. But if we're all in this together, and the Bible says we are, we need to be working through that. Maybe we're leaning on others or we're getting some help with that. But God is at work, and it's good, and we're being purified from that leprosy, if you will. And I'd say as well that God has saved you quite clearly to live to love his people. That's an important point in this passage this morning. For you and I, this love that we have should be a response to the truth we've received, this obedience to the truth. I think it's important to note here that we not only get our doctrine right at this church, it seems like many churches fall into two groups, and I'm speaking generally here because it's not true for everyone, but churches either are really strong in their theology and they struggle to love, or they're really good at loving and they struggle with theology. Again, it's a generality. But biblically, this should be a balance. It should begin with truth, strong theology based in Scripture, but it doesn't stop there. That should move us to love one another with a fervent love based on that truth. I believe that's what Peter has in mind here. All this is grounded, again, in what God has done for us. You can love because a purification is taking place in your heart, And you can love because God has permanently changed you. This is the second point in verses 23 through 25. Your new birth is the grounds for Peter's command. Now back in verse 3, if you go all the way back in chapter 1, verse 3, God caused you to be born again. New birth means new life. And this is why you can love people you would not otherwise Love. That's why you can love people you might not otherwise know. God puts all kinds of people together in his families. New birth means you love in new ways. And new birth is just another way of of speaking about becoming a Christian. Uh, When we hear the good news of Jesus Christ, we are, are born again if we believe. And that good news is that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life and he died for our sins and he rose from the dead. And if we believe upon that, we are saved. We are born again. That's this idea of new birth here. 
And Peter's going to use this notion of, of new birth, but, but illustrate it using a seed. You see that in verse 23. It's planted, it's sprouted, it's imperishable. And one of those three words don't fit the definition of a seed. The seed being imperishable, that's the anomaly. Anytime you plant a seed, it dies. Whatever it produces, it dies, at least eventually. Peter loves to talk about salvation in these terms. Back in verse 4, your, your inheritance is imperishable. In verse 18, the ransom of your redemption is imperishable. And now this seed of faith, it too is imperishable. This living, enduring word of God, it's not going to rot or fade or decay. It doesn't warp. It doesn't wither. It doesn't spoil. Peter declares it living. It has produced life in you. He declares it enduring. It's persisting in its work. And no other seed is going to produce any similar result. God, through his word, gave you new life. This is a life which now has the capacity to live to love others. From the moment of your new birth, God's given you a new capacity, a capacity to love fellow Christians, people like you, people unlike you. And this new life, though, it's included a response from you. You are are being purified. You're purifying your soul to love others. And Peter's put that together and said, you can now fervently love one another. The question this morning, then, is will we do this? In the 1970s and the 1980s, Lake Mead enjoyed maximum capacity. The Hoover Dam project was quite successful. The lake was enormous. It allowed for what we would call an overabundance of life-giving water. But then something happened. Things began to change. Other projects in the western side of the states, they began to divert water away from Lake Mead. Droughts began to happen in pretty close frequency. And one year ago, Lake Mead measured 27% of her capacity. She fell that much. Sunken boats began to appear on the cracked, dry lake bed. The town of St. Thomas reappeared. It was flooded when they built the dam. And what's described as bathtub rings mark the cliff faces all around that dam. You could see the, the high water mark of the lake. And I say that because it's possible for a love to grow cold. Any church can go into drought. And I say that so that it's never said of Emmanuel, that we would not be the church where a love has grown cold, where a drought has occurred, and we're not fervently loving one another, because you and I know that God has done way too much in our lives to let that happen. And God has brought you and I way too far, and he's redeemed us from way too much, and he's loved us too deeply for us to ever allow that to grow cold. God has given you a profound capacity to love other Christians. Love your brothers and love your sisters fervently. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, thank you for your example of love. Thank you for first loving us. Thank you for the display of love that our Lord Jesus has given us as well. I pray for us today, Lord, in the ways that we struggle to love one another. Satan is always working to bring disunity. Lord, our own flesh, at times it's, it's hard. We're all so different. Lord, I pray that you would help us to break through those things, to rise above them, and to let nothing disunify us, to allow no root of sin or, or malice or bitterness. And I pray that most of all, you would give us a grace to love one another and to love one another fervently. Lord, we know that we can do these things by your power. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.